Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find out more about our show on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. Kim and I are here every week to talk to you about everything we find in the wine world. And Kim, every once in a while, we like to tell the listeners again what this show is about. Right. So we follow current trends and topics in the wine industry. And sometimes we get a little geeky and talk about topics that are more geared toward wine professionals, winemakers, wine growers. But we try to put in a lot of information that is useful for the everyday wine consumer. And I know personally that's something that is very important to me is getting information across to people who are just regular wine drinkers. You might not drink every week or certainly every day, but we want to put out some information out there that is uh, is useful to you and that you can use when you go into a wine store or a restaurant. And a lot of the content that we talk to you about is things that we find online and get together and discuss with you. But a lot of feedback as well comes from classes and from a feedback we get on our Facebook page. So keep questions always coming so we can approach them with you on the air. Our first topic today is from 750.com. Five descriptions wine professionals avoid. So in this article, they were talking about sommeliers adapting the language of wine for consumers. I feel I'm kind of guilty of some of these. So it's very interesting because I feel like this list of things kind of ran the gamut of really what I consider to be basic wine terms that everyone I think should understand if they want to have a reasonable, intelligent conversation about wine with someone who is a wine professional or works in the industry or or even just, you know, you want to go to a wine tasting and you want to talk to someone in a reasonable kind of way about wine. But then there are other things that I completely agree with that really are terms that if you're just a casual wine drinker, there is absolutely no reason for a wine professional to be bringing up certain things with you. Yeah, we always talk about geeky things in wine. And, and this is definitely one of the things that makes you a geek as you talk about these real technical terms. And in this article, they focus more on sommeliers, but basically any wine educator or wine salesperson falls into this. And I'm sure it's happened to you, Kim, but you're talking to someone about a wine, you say something, and then a lot of times they won't say it, but a lot of times they're going to say, well, I have no idea what you're saying. And you just feel bad because you didn't come across. Yeah, their eyes glaze over it. And I'm like, oh, I lost you. (laughs) Like, okay, all right. I need to, I know that I need to dial it back a little bit and help you get to the same place that I'm at. So they had five terms they talked about. And we, we talk a lot about in our shows. The first one was acidity. And many times I find myself in my descriptions, I'll say bright mm-hmm. when it comes to acidity. So do you think, Kim, that saying an acid in a wine is a bright feature of a wine is overused? or I don't think it's overused. What I think the problem with talking about acidity and using the term acid there is that acid can be a scary sounding thing for people because we can talk about things that are high in acid and make them sound a little bit less scary, but 
but that word acid, I think, is something that can have these negative connotations for people. I mean, you think of burns and you think of acid rain and you think of foods that might be so tart and unpleasant because of their levels of acidity that I think that if we were to use terms that can get across the idea that this thing has acidity to it, but in a positive way. And I think that your use of the word bright is actually very fitting. So like I like to talk in terms of lemonade because lemonade is, yeah, it's got some sourness to it, but that it's also got the sweet that balances it out. So for me, that's a, a good entry point that I can use for people to talk about something that has acidity to it, but in a pleasant, positive kind of way. That's a, a great point because a lot of times we like to tell people you should know what's in your wine and then, then we scare them saying there's acid right. in your wine. But it's a major component that you need to tell people about if they're interested in pairing with foods. Right. Or think about something like balsamic vinegar, which because there's sweetness and richness in there and people I don't think are quite as scared of that as, you know, here's this giant container of distilled vinegar and we're going to talk about acidity and people will be like, blah. So you know, I think using other food terms, bringing in other, other ideas that play off of the theme of acidity, but in kind of more of a, a friendly, approachable way. So the language was replacing acidity with bright. They also mentioned lively. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if there's any crisp, maybe. Crisp. I tend to use zippy and zesty, which I think are fun, playful words. And especially for wines like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that have that brightness to them. But you say, ooh, zippy, you know, <laughs> something a little bit more uh, more fun. But it's, it was good they mentioned this first, I feel, because it is a very important part of learning your profile in a wine. Do you like wines that are crisp and acidic? Right. And, and I think eventually wine drinkers have to get used to the term acidity. But maybe it's a context thing. And at the very beginning, when you're trying to introduce people to concepts in wine, that, that I'm okay with kind of staying or backing away from the term acid for a little bit. But I do feel like eventually it's a word that has to be uh, understood. The next descriptor they talked about trying to avoid is reduction, which I heard this when the first time I heard this, I was like, why would you say this to a wine drinker? And I think a lot of it has come up recently because of the screw cap closures. Mm -hmm. So what is this? It's when you have a wine that's without oxygen. For It's the opposite of oxidized. Right. So it, it often comes into play, like you said, with screw cap wines or wines that have been made and bottled in such a way that there hasn't been enough oxygen in the winemaking process to kind of balance everything out. So sometimes you might pop open a bottle of a screw cap wine and there's a little bit of a sulfury kind of smell like that somewhat bad egg or at, right after you light a match, sometimes you'll get that kind of burnt iggy smell. So that is that sulfur dioxide smell. Honestly, I don't even remember the last time that I used the term reductive in a class or with people that I'm tasting with. It's not something that I often bring up because usually with these wines, it kind of blows off after a few minutes if you put it in your glass and swirl it around. So it's this is that like upper level of wine conversation. And I, I honestly don't think that we really need to talk about it too much with people. Yeah, and I was I was just going to ask you that is have you ever used this? Why would it maybe once? Yeah. Like I can't yeah. even. I yeah. Why I don't would know. you even in as a professional serving wine? Why would you even mention it? I mean, I mean, you open it like you said, you smell sulfur. You would probably say this needs 
to breathe, let me decant it. Right. But you don't have to get into why. Yeah, the only the thing reduction. that I can think of would be maybe the wine is so reductive that you want to take the bottle away from them and be like, all right, I'm going to open another bottle for you because this one, in my opinion, just isn't showing the way that it's supposed to show and you're not going to get the full enjoyment out of it because it doesn't taste right. But I, and I mean, maybe the customer goes that next step further and, and asks, well, why? And then I feel like, okay, you opened that door, so I'm going to walk through it and I'm going to talk to you about reduction. But other than that, I feel like this is a case of too much information. Yeah, I agree with that. And the, the next term they talked about was saying obscure fruits. <laughs> I love and this Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about this a lot when you're reading a, a wine uh, description and, and people just go off on these rare fruits or something you never heard about. You can't really associate that unless you're a foodie, maybe like right. yourself, Kim, you can relate to it. But we try to stick to basic fruits. You know, it's a berry fruit. It's a red berry. It's a light berry it's a dark berry and sometimes there are terms that are common wine speak but are not fruits that are commonly eaten in the area that you live in and i find that that is also something that is um difficult for people so like okay so a lot of early wine critics were all english gentlemen and there are a lot of other fruits that are eaten and more familiar in england than are here but they've come into our wine tasting lexicon as like real characteristics of certain grape varieties and the, the ones that come to mind for me are currants and gooseberry americans don't eat a whole lot of currants and most people have never ever seen a gooseberry but those are flavors that we commonly see in wine tasting notes but i try to stay away from them because i don't feel that people have the association with those. So trying to find other terms that are more familiar to people. Like I would rather use terms for fruits and vegetables and other experiential things that people, you know, see and taste and smell on a fairly regular basis. So I, th I think it's all back kind of to context and to experience. You picked the two that I think are the probably the most common obscure fruits used yeah. in currants and, and gooseberry. And I remember years ago when I first heard the term, I, I knew what the fruit was, but the way I experiences was the instructor opened up um, a liqueur, a current uh, liqueur. Nice. So you can get that flavor down. Yeah. And um, you can find gooseberries. I have eaten them, but they're certainly not very common. Yeah. And, and a good way to do it is to actually get the fruit and, and right. look at it. Right. But they, they are two of the most overused. And we always say when you're just starting to describe wines or learn wines, just go with the basics. And our joke is always red, say cherry <laughs> fruit and white, say apple fruit. And you won't you look bad ever right um, anytime saying what you what you smell or what you taste my husband has a great story from a wine tasting class that he took a long time ago when i was just starting to get into wine and he was like oh you know this would be cool if i took this class too and the teacher would like bust out with these totally obscure descriptors you know they would stand up at the front of the room and, and swirl the glass and smell it and be like this i taste this and smell this and all this and he remembers looking at the uh the student that was sitting next to him and they just kind of looked at each other and shook their heads and it was a complete turnoff for them as a student because not only did they not really understand what the heck they were supposed to be smelling but that I, I think the idea that the professor would stand up there and would shoot all these things off was was just very off-putting for the students. Yeah and the, and the professionals they're trained to keep tasting and keep trying to decipher more and more things within the wine so they're just pulling these things out all the time so the bottom line I guess is basic. Keep it basic. 
basic, basic. not obscure fruits. Uh, the next thing they talked about was avoiding the word dry. And Ugh, Kim, this is so you, hard yeah, to stay away talk from. about this a lot. And you always have that great reference, dry versus sweet, wet. And, and I always think that is the best advice when you're talking about dry versus sweet. The word dry is really my in kind of intro to wine speak for people. And I like to explain it in that, all right, every profession every specialty does have to have its own language. You know, you wouldn't go to the doctor and not use the correct terms for your body parts. So why would you speak to your wine professional and feel like it is you're being put upon by being asked to use the correct technical terms for for things in order to have an intelligent conversation? So yes, there are certain terms that I feel when you are at a basic level of talking about wine that you have to understand in order to have that intelligent conversation and for me i know this list put dry it puts dry on it but for me i feel like dry is one of those real basic things that you have to understand being that it means an absence of sugar that you can taste in the wine so yeah like i said dry and dry is not the opposite of, of wet when it comes to wine but that being said there are different thresholds of how you perceive a dry wine and how I might perceive a dry wine. So I think that that can lead to good conversations with people. So then we can talk about, okay, in, let's put these two wines together. Do you feel that this one tastes sweeter than this one? Or are you experiencing fruity flavors as opposed to sugary sweetness? And I kind of always go back to that lemonade analogy again and t- try to talk about balance. So for me, I am not afraid of using the word dry and I don't, I really don't feel like I can come up with another term to put in its place. You know, you have all these other terms to use in place of acid, which I think is great, but I, I can't really come up with anything else that will take the place of dry versus sweet for me. Yeah, and what you said is the key. Everybody perceives things differently. And the, the, the best thing is just understand if you say it's dry and I say it's sweet, I want to understand why you're saying it's dry. So, and I want to understand why you think it's sweet. Yeah, and that's the whole thing about the world of wine that is just great because you you're getting all this and you're trying to work out and build a profile. And I think for a, a somal year to say something is dry or sweet without knowing what you think of it, it kind of turns people off because they might not think you know what you're talking about mm-hmm. if you're totally opposite. So the final descriptor they said to avoid was to avoid all descriptors. I, I guess, Kim, we, we were kind of touching base. Stay away from, I guess, the geeky things and maybe get to the personal level is kind of how I interpreted this. I saw this as a, I am not going to tell you anything about this wine because I want you to experience it for yourself, which I I can get on board with not wanting to influence what somebody is experiencing because we do know that this happens, that if you have a glass in front of you and we're tasting together and I suggest certain things, then you're going to be like, oh, yeah, oh, I get that. Oh, okay. And I don't know if I'm just like peeking some ideas for you or if I'm actually putting that idea in your own mind. So I can kind of see that maybe the wine professional doesn't want to be the first one to volunteer those tasting notes or those tasting ideas. But to say completely, I'm not going to tell you anything about what I am perceiving in this wine, I think does the the client or the customer a disservice because they may want to learn from us. So I think having that as opening a door for a conversation, I, I don't really feel like it's necessary to completely eliminate all wine terms, all all descriptive terms. Yeah, and a lot of it leads to you have to you have to ask questions to 
to gain some knowledge from the person how much more they want to know from you so if that person you ask them do you like if they start talking dry or sweet then you can ask them what they think is dry and sweet as a style or wine or a right. wine style and it leads to more things it means to what what price point do you want to be in what do you typically drink do you want to try something new that's similar to what i think you like so there's a lot i mean that's that's a lot how they ended this was strange because they you know they specifically said things and then they made this a huge final point. (laughs) You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. We can be found online at vinitaswineworks.com for Kim. And you can find Mark at franklinliquors.com. A great piece in the New York Times talking about why you should try to experience obscure grape varieties and try some new things and get outside your comfort zone. I really liked this article a lot, Mark. Yeah, I agree. Because I always feel being a wine geek that we are, Kim, we like to know what is new, what is trending. And I think that's what they were talking about here. Don't be afraid to adventure out on different varietals. Right. And and I kind of saw this article as being broken down into talking about sort of two groupings of obscure grape varieties and kind of obscure in quotation marks. So there are those more common grape varieties that if you know anything about wine, or if you are a little bit more um, adventurous in your wine tasting, that there are grape varieties that are native to certain regions that have been around for a while. And if you walk into a well-stocked wine store, chances are you'll be able to find these grape varieties. We're talking about a lot of native grapes to, say, places like Spain, like Albarino, like, you know, maybe Tempranillo, if you don't drink a lot of red wines, Gruner Veltliner from Austria, Zweigelt also sort of from the Al. So those are grape varieties that have a bit of a following and that you can find with, I would say, relative ease in a well-stocked store or in a a restaurant that has a fairly adventurous wine list. And then there are these other grape varieties that are made in tiny quantities, maybe by only a few producers in not only grapes that you have really never heard of, but places that you might not have heard of as producing wine. So I kind of feel like we've got two buckets to talk about here. So we've got those more commonly found things that beginner wine drinkers probably haven't had a chance to taste yet. And then these real, real obscure things that probably you and I haven't even had yet. Yeah. And I think for me as a retailer, it breaks down to what is a hand sell of something new versus what's the normal, noble, international grapes that you see everywhere, you know, the Chardonnays, this and that. But one of the the uh, stats they gave in here, Kim, was about known grapes. So you always see numbers of, of how many grapes there are. And they were stating 1,300 known grapes, of which 80% of the world's wine comes only from 20%. Right. 20 grapes. I'm 20 sorry, not 20%. Grapes. 20 grapes out of the 1,300 make 80% of the wine. So like you said, when you walk into a store and you're looking for something they call weird, 80% of the time you're going to find the normal stuff. Right. And by the normal stuff, we're talking about, you know, Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot. I could, I could literally probably list all 20 of them <laughs> right yeah. off the top of my head. And it seems people, are people, I don't know if you're finding it, Kim, but are people getting sick of seeing those same 20 grapes? 
Mm, uh, you see no. the trend? No, I not sick of. I don't. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone who says, "Oh, you know, I'm so tired of these wines. What else have you got out there?" Because those other things are out there, and I think that there is so much variety on labels and in stores that I think if people do want to find something new, that they can, and that those things should be readily at hand for people, even if they just you know move over to the Italian section and pick up something rather unusual for them like Sagrantino's or Nero Davola or something relatively unusual and found only from Italy. Yeah, and I think, like you said, Kim, there's so many different obscure grapes out there that have very similar profiles to these noble 20 grapes that it it is a good idea to adventure adventure out and and see what's out there. But I I don't see too many people very receptive to changing what they have, but that's why we like doing education to say, Mm -hmm. hey, this is out there. And then I think I see real great response when we show these other grape varieties, people like, wow, I never had this. And I think they will then go out and try to seek them. Right. And that's why for a lot of my classes, I tend to not emphasize that, okay, we're going to be tasting new grape varieties, but I tend to say, okay, this is going to be a class based on what is the style of the wine. So I might be showing you a grape variety that you've never had before, but I can say, now I bet if you like Pinot Grigio, this is going to appeal to you because it hits this mark and this mark and this mark that are very similar to Pinot Grigio. So you might never have heard of this grape variety before, but if you like the flavors and the textures in Grigio, give this one a shot because I bet you like it too. Yeah, and sometimes that varietal, like you're talking about uh, Pinot Noir, you can find it from regions you never thought made Pinot Noir. They might call it a different name. And that's another way to venture out for for weird type of Mm -hmm. style wines. Mm -hmm. And I did like the little twist that they put in this article about about not only what other things are out there and the, that you should be trying, but why you should be trying to experience them. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that we have so much of this emphasis on those top 20, like you said, that these other minor grape varieties are literally facing extinction and that there might only be a handful of producers in one tiny little area that is growing them and that it's really important for biodiversity to keep these grape varieties alive. And honestly, if there isn't a market for these things, we might lose them. And I think that that if you are thinking altruistically about the environment and about this idea of we need to have some diversity in our plant life and in in, in other species in the world, that, that it's important to support these kinds of things. Yeah, and that's a great point. And that every once in a while you hear a story about someone who found this native grape and they're bringing it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you said, if people are not interested in it, then you're not going to grow a ton of acres of it because right. you, you won't make any money, you won't sell it. So. Right. And really, you know, what is there to lose? You know, be brave. Drink. <laughs> Go, take a chance. You know, if it's not going to completely break the bank, and I understand at a restaurant, do you want to take a chance on a $60 bottle of wine that you have absolutely no clue what it's all about? N- no, you probably don't. And I get that. But for $10, $15, maybe $20 in a liquor store, you're most likely going to like the wine more than you're going to hate it. Unless it is a completely wacky style, I think that people should be brave and take a chance on on trying something new.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Next, we'd like to talk about an article that was in winesearcher.com about Italy's DOCG dilemma. And Kim, a lot of times when we talk about Italian wines or French wines, you have to talk about the certification or the laws, and DOC and DOCG are laws of Italian wine. Right. So these were the laws that were put into place in the 1960s. In the middle of the 20th century, there was this big push for European winemakers and governments to put into place these certifications, but this overarching system of laws that would guarantee that the wines that were being produced were coming from the regions that they said they were coming from. So that is really what was at the basis of it was to protect through labeling laws that what you thought you were buying, because that's what the label told you, that that was the juice that was actually in the bottle. And so the the laws will make certain things uh, have to happen to be set in these levels. And it could be the yields, it could be the amount of bottles, it could be aging. So much goes into it. Alcohol levels. Grape varieties. Varieties they use. They, they tell them this is what you have to do to become certified at that level. And sometimes it's even the style that is dictated. So say you live in, we'll, we'll take Italy because we're talking about Italian wines here. Say you want to make a Chianti. You live in the region of Chianti. You want to make a Chianti. You're going to use the same grapes, which is generally Sangiovese that goes into Chianti, but say you want to make it as a dessert wine. Uh Uh-uh. You can't make a dessert wine out of those grapes and call it Chianti because that's not the style that Chianti is all about. And that that leads to what the whole article was really about saying, does does it matter if you're DOCG level wine? Does that mean it's better quality than a lower level wine? Right. So for Italian wines, the fine wine category is broken into two. It's broken into DOC. And then there's another level that is slightly, quote unquote, higher than that called DOCG. G stands for guaranteed. And I think what is tricky about this system is that that higher level is given not to a particular producer or a particular wine, but to the entire region. So you can be making some pretty crummy wine in the region that is a DOCG region and still be able to give it this highest designation. Yeah. So Kim, by now I'm thinking, people are thinking, what the heck? What the yeah, heck we're talking about? Because it's confusing. confusing. And a lot of times when we talk about a region, we stay away from the laws and the levels because it's just, it's like the next level. But the DOCG guaranteed, you said, the, the, the way I could explain it in Italy is Chianti region is DOC. The Chianti Classico region is the next level DOCG. Right. So there's different levels. So the DOCG really wasn't evolved until like 1980. So it's fairly recent. And then they then adapted to EU laws with this system as right. well. And that adds a whole other level of complexity and bureaucratic oversight to it once the EU came into play and had to add its own sort of set of regulations to all of these already in place wine laws that all these other wine producing countries already had. And as a consumer, how would you know what the heck level it is when you pick up a bottle? They have seals, government seals that they issued. So the DOC is typically a blue seal that goes around the top of the, of the bottle. DOCG is usually 
a gold seal. And just said number-wise, the, the, the number of DOCGs is only in the 70s. The number of DOCs is in the 300s. So right. there's far fewer DOCGs. Now, getting back to is this a quality thing? Like Kim was saying, they tell you this is what you have to grow. But there are some producers saying, you know, I might be in a Chianti region, but I want to grow Cabernet and I want to sell Cabernet. The government says, okay, but you cannot call it that highest level. You can do it, but you can't call it certified DOCG. So there are high quality wines that are made, but they are not ranked this high level by the government. Right. I suggest that people, consumers, not look at it as a guarantee of quality, but as a guarantee of typicity. So guarantee of this is the typical style that you should be expecting to get from this region. And this is really based on historically what has been produced in this area. So it guarantees that the wine is from this place that is told to you on the label and that it guarantees that this is the tr- traditional style of what the name of this wine is. So this is, it's it kind of highlights the classics. If you wanted to do a class on or a, a session in the classic wines of Italy, then you would go to these DOCG wines because it is showing you that classically, this is what we traditionally expect to have the wine taste like from this region. So that's why all of these wines that are from regions that will say Classico on them. So whether it's Orvieto Classico or whether it's Chianti Classico are these more traditional styles of wine. And it's, it's sort of like a your, your primer in Italian wines. And what should we be expecting to taste? Yeah. And that was a great explanation because even though the government says this is the typical style. It might not be your style. So Right. You might not like you it. You might not like you that You might not level. like it. And it might not be the highest quality out there if you put two glasses of wine next to each other and this is a DOCG and this is just a basic table wine from someone who's doing really cool, funky stuff out there. But it might just not fit into maybe a, what is it, a, a square peg in a round hole. <laughs> it yeah. just It doesn't follow the rules and it doesn't fit. That doesn't mean it's a bad wine. And this article focused on Italy's system. Them, but you could say this for any country or same way with the United States. I mean, you might like California wine versus Napa wine. And, and it, it's just it's your preference. But mm-hmm. to have a basic understanding of the DOC and DOCG could be good when you're trying to get the most for your money say. If you like Chianti and you're seeing a a DOCG Chianti price the same as a DOC, then you're probably getting a better value for your money. Does that make sense, Kim, as far as... Yeah, it does. I think if you're looking, if you're comparing apples to apples and you're looking within that greater Chianti area, but I don't think it necessarily works for Italy as a whole. I feel like when in the 60s they put this system into place, they were really trying to emulate what the French were doing. But I I don't know. I, I don't think that they necessarily did it really well. <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to offend a, a whole bunch of Italian wine drinkers and wine importers out there. But it's, it is a, a slightly different philosophy than what the French have, because they seemed to indicate that, hey, this is a, an indication of higher quality, when in fact, it's really not. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please follow us and leave us your questions and comments, and we will visit with you again next week. Thank you. Thank you.